Well, good morning, church. It is a real blessing for us to be able to join together and worship around the Lord's table uh, in prayer and song, and now as we gather together around His Word. I want to welcome all of you who are here in person, as well as those of you who are joining us online. I, I want to extend a special welcome to those of you who are our guests this morning. Uh, you are very welcome in this place, and if you can stick around a little bit after worship is over so that we can get to know you, uh, we would really appreciate it. Uh, before we step into the sermon together, let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for Scripture, uh, for your Word, and how through the power of your Holy Spirit it speaks in new and, and at times unexpected ways into our lives. And we pray that you would help us this morning as your people to open our hearts, to open our lives, to hear what it is you want us to hear. And God, as we listen, may we be changed in the listening. May we be transformed more and more into the people you want us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as, as Holly mentioned, we're starting a brand new sermon series this morning, study series focus calling it a beginner's guide to church, and, and I realize in, in kind of picking that title that there may be several of us in this room that think, well, I'm not a beginner when it comes to church, and so I'm not sure how much of this is going to be uh, new information for me, and, and I realize that. It still came across as a lot more inviting than that common uh, title that you come across in bookstores, you know, the, the dummy's guide to church. I didn't want to call it that. Uh, th this felt a lot more appropriate to, to church, but I also want us to think through the ways in which, you know, when, when you consider the deepest realities, the, the deepest kinds of experiences in our lives, it, it's not something that we're able to just learn about once or experience once and then we fully grasp it. It's over. We move on to the next thing, right? That's true in marriage, if you think that you've figured out all there is to know about marriage, it's probably a real challenge to be married to you, right? If, if you think as a parent you've got it all figured out and you're not open to learning any new ideas or approaches to parenting, uh, you probably have some kids that when you're not around have some things they share with their friends about you. When it comes to developing as a person, if you decide, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at being exactly who I want to be. I think I'm done improving. Well, then there's probably some people in your life who, if you got them in the right place, they might tell you all the struggles that they can clearly see that you still have. I hear the same is true about your golf game, right? I don't have the patience or the optimism to golf. But it, all the people I know who take it up, they're never golfing the way they wish they someday will be able to golf. All of the deepest things in life call for us to have this posture of heart and spirit where we're always learning. It doesn't matter if this is our first Sunday that we're in church. It doesn't matter if it's the 3,000th Sunday. You don't have to Google it. It's 57 and a half years <laughs> if you go every Sunday without missing one. It doesn't matter because we all have more to learn. That's not a burden, it's a promise, it's a gift from God that however much we've experienced within the community of faith, there's still more for us to encounter, to, to travel through together with, with all the ways that maybe we've been blessed in church, 
There's more blessing waiting for us in the ways that we may have struggled at times in church. Those struggles don't get to completely describe and define what church is and what it can be. And, and furthermore, as we study scripture, I think it's important for us to try our best to understand when Paul first sends this letter to the church in Corinth, what is he imagining in his heart? What kind of audience is he picturing? And this is true of all the New Testament letters. Every New Testament letter is written to beginner Christians. They're all relatively recent converts in the first century. None of them grew up in church the way some of us in this room feel like we were able to grow up in church. And even if they've been a Christian for a number of years, they, they feel like beginners because it's all brand new. This whole experiment of church is brand new. It doesn't matter what their background is. They haven't experienced church before this moment when they're called together as followers of Christ and they're trying to figure out what their common shared life is going to be like. They understand that they're new at it. And I think in other ways, Paul wants them to understand that no matter how much progress they make, they always need to have a sense that they're new at it. That they're just beginning. Now, we, we started out this worship service listening to some of the earliest words that Paul shares with the church in Corinth, right? We could have gone back to the very first verse. This is how all the letters kind of work in the New Testament. There's a greeting, grace, and peace to you. He, he talks about who he is. He's an apostle. He's, he's been sent to them by God. He, he has Sosthenes, who is helping him write this letter. He mentions him. And then he moves into communicating the relationship they share together. And this usually helps when you're starting to talk to people to communicate to them how thankful you are for the relationship. And that's what Paul does. He, he talks about how grateful he is for the relationship they share together, that, that he is this not only a founding apostle of this community, but he knows them well. And then he talks to them about the ways God is already at work in them. And so I think that I, I'm thankful for the fact that God is, is shaping you through the Holy Spirit, that, that you have all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that, that God is going to help you remain faithful to the end. But after he gets through the greeting and talking about how thankful he is for them and the ways that he can see God at work in them, he turns to the real reason that he's writing this entire letter. And I don't want us to miss it. You know, there's so many verses in 1 Corinthians, it'd be easy for us to kind of pick different places where we're going to say, well, this is what the letter's about. Well, verse 10 is the place where we need to go to understand why is it that Paul, sitting down with Sosthenes and together from Ephesus, they are sending this letter to this, this body of believers in Corinth. So let's read together now, 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 10. Now I encourage you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, agree with each other, don't be divided into rival groups, instead be restored with the same mind and the same purpose. My brothers and sisters, Chloe's people gave me some information about you. Now let me stop you there. 
We can piece together that one of the reasons Paul's writing this letter is that the church in Corinth has sent questions to him. They've got some concerns about church. They need his guidance and his wisdom. But before he's going to get to addressing those questions, he wants to tell them that Chloe's people have come and tattled on them. I mean, that's not really what happened, but that's how it feels. When you're trying to have a conversation with somebody and you've got a question, they're like, yeah, before I get to that, I need to share with you that Chloe's people have given me some information about you, that you're fighting. Right? It's like how my parents always talked to us if they ever called me and my sisters in the summer, in the middle of the day. It didn't matter. They didn't have to actually see us fighting. They just knew when they called. They'd say, yeah, you've probably been fighting, right? Cut it out. So that's kind of what Paul's doing here. My brothers and sisters, Chloe's people gave me some information about you that you're fighting with each other. Now what I mean is this, because he knows they're going to deny it. So he's going to get specific. Each one of you says, well, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. Apollos was a, a famous Christian preacher that worked with this church in Corinth alongside of Paul. I belong to Peter, the apostle Peter. I belong to Christ. Now, you might think, well, everybody belongs to Christ, but there apparently were some church members, now this is 2,000 years ago, this wouldn't happen today, that claimed that they're the true followers of Christ and other people aren't. Okay? Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into Paul's name? Thank God that I didn't baptize any of you. Well, there was Crispus and Gaius. I'm sorry, guys. So that nobody can say that you were baptized into my name. Oh, and, and I, I baptized the house of Stephanus too. Otherwise, I don't know. Now, he's not diminishing baptism. He's angry at what they've turned baptism into. Right? They've tried to baptize their tendencies of comparing one another and trying to out compete one another and he says if that's what you're if you think that you can take that kind of of division and strife and call that baptism you don't understand what you're being baptized into I don't know if I baptized anyone else Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the good news and Christ didn't send me to preach the good news with clever words or eloquence right because if it's clever words that work well then for them, Christ's cross could be emptied of its power in their lives. Okay, this is a, this is a rough turn from, you know, from Paul, your father in the face, and Sosthenes, and we, we're so thankful for you, and we're thankful for the ways God's at work in you, to Chloe's people told us you're fighting, and that you're, you're arguing with one another about who's more important. And before I get on to anything else, we're going to have to deal with this because in church, there cannot be rivals. There, there is no one who matters more than Jesus at church. And Jesus says that every single one of us is worth his life. Stop comparing yourselves to one another. Stop treating each other this way. Now, so let's, let's go back to, to verse 10 of chapter 1 because this is it. This is the key verse. 
that the rest of the letter is built on, okay? And it's arranged around a positive command and then a negative command and then a positive command, right? So the first thing he says positively is agree. Agree with one another. Now, he obviously doesn't mean agree about every single thing. He means agree on the centrality of Christ. Jesus is our center. Jesus is what our lives are built on. Jesus is is who we're trying to be more like. Jesus is where we are, and Jesus is where we're going. If we can't agree on that being the one non-negotiable center of our shared life, it will fall apart. It'll fragment. Then he says, okay, and and how that's going to have to start to come true among you is don't, don't choose sides at church. Don't do that. Don't, don't talk about different leaders that you prefer. Don't, don't compare yourself to one another or, or those leaders and act like that, that that's going to give you a, a certain amount of standing within the church. That may work out in the world. That doesn't work inside here. Don't choose sides. And then he comes back to positive. And he says, be restored. Now, when you talk about restoration, you can talk about it in a lot of different ways, right? But it's obvious that what he's saying is be restored to one another. Rebuild your relationships with one another. How do you do that? Well, by sharing the same mind and the same purpose. Now, I think what's tricky, and and I think it's even more complicated given the current state of things in our world and in our culture, pretty much if you ask people, What's the best, most foolproof way to both create and maintain unity? You're going to find one way or another the answer centering on, well, uniformity. That's how you maintain unity. You think alike. You make sure that everybody talks alike. You make sure that when it comes to church, everybody would interpret Scripture the, the same exact way. You want to be basically in polite lockstep together so that you don't fight or have any disagreements. Now, I, I want to point out to you, Paul doesn't get into the theological content of the disagreements because their sides aren't really about theological disagreements. It's about who's more important than the others. So he doesn't get into that. It's, it's the, the problem of people using church as a way to feel more important. That's not what church is for. Right? And so he's, he's trying to say, look, you're going to have to be restored to one another by having the same mindset and the same purpose. And, you know, there's that, that, that song that we, we, we sing sometimes. It's, it's on, the, on Christian radio sometimes. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, Jesus. That's such an important statement because I think there are days where if we were honest and we sang that song, we'd say it's all about me. No, true worship is about Christ. True shared life in church is about Christ. We have to keep coming back to that. And there's times when it's, it's easier for us to say things like, well, our unity is based on the Bible. No, it's not. It's based on Christ. The Bible's trying to help us center our lives on Jesus and Jesus alone. I've known many churches that have had divisions based on their interpretation of Scripture, and so do you. It's not Scripture that holds us together. It's not our interpretation or our way of reading it that holds us together. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Now, 
one of the things that Paul's convinced of is that the gospel isn't just something that happens between me and Jesus and that, you know, he dies for my sins on the cross. He, he pays a debt that he didn't owe and I owed a debt that I couldn't pay. Like, that's all happening at the cross for Paul. But there's something communal happening at the cross for Paul. And he claims time and again that the gospel isn't just something you believe in. It's something we live out together. And it looks like something specific in the life of the world. It looks like unity that's strong enough to handle diversity. Unity that's, that's strong enough to handle differences of opinion. Unity that's strong enough to handle times when we can't quite figure out how to, how to understand where someone else is coming from. But we decide, you know what, even if I can't understand where you're coming from, I know where we're all trying to get together. It's Jesus. So this unity that Paul is calling for, this same mindset, this same purpose, if we're going to use a song metaphor... It's, it's more like this, that the kind of unity that we're trying to find is it's, it's singing multiple harmonies within the same song. It's not only happening when we sing a single melody in unison. Right now, this is not some, you know, indirect uh, way to talk about four-part harmony. Um, I mean, it fits us pretty well, but you know what I'm saying here. I'm, I'm trying to say, for Paul, one of the greatest tragedies that could happen to the church is that we insist that everybody has to embody Jesus in the same exact way. Because we lose the richness of different perspectives and different gifts and different points of view. And if we're supposed to reach the watching world with our example of unity that's stronger than division then it can't just all look like me, the whole church. The whole church can't just look like you. And even if we're, we're through the power of the Holy Spirit individually becoming more and more like Christ every day, that my life is too small of a place to connect with all the lives that are out there. Your life on your own, it's too small of a place. But together as God's people, our shared life becomes a big enough landscape for people who are coming from all kinds of places in our world to connect with somebody here and have some sense of who they might be if they were becoming more like Jesus. And we're not all singing the exact same melody. We're harmonizing together. And we're encouraging that. And we don't get afraid when we realize we don't all agree about everything exactly the same way. We thank Jesus that we're all welcome here anyway. And if I don't find a way to protect your place in this church family, even if we don't see eye to eye, then I'm not really, I'm not really a part of this church family in the way Jesus longs for me to be. If I insist on everyone in this room agreeing with me all the time, I'm going to be stressed out and you're going to feel like I don't listen to you and pretty soon we're going to get to a place where the best we could hope for is some kind of civil distance that we just don't try to disagree or, or get into topics that are difficult. By the way, more and more I find there are an increasing number of things on a list of what I'm afraid to talk about at church because I don't want you to leave. And I don't want to be asked to leave. You know, my dad, every once in a while, he'd get all worked up about something, and he'd tell me before he left in the morning, he'd say, son, I hope this isn't a moving sermon. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, we're going to have to move after I preach it. Okay, so what exactly are they doing? 
when they say, I belong to Paul, and I belong to Apollos, and I belong to Cephas or Peter, I belong to, to Christ. They're doing what people in Corinth did. People in Corinth, now, now Corinth was one of the most prosperous, important cities in, in ancient Greece. And they, that, that mattered to them. It made them feel important. It, it was even a larger and more prosperous city than Athens at the time that Paul is writing this letter. They were in a constant comparison game of who could, who could do more, who could get more attention, who could get the spotlight, who could hold on to it. Now, one of the ways they did that was they would follow popular philosophers or teachers. They would become their disciples. And so some of the people at this church are claiming just like they would before they became a Christian, well, I belong to, to the Paul faction of this church. I belong to the Apollos faction of this church. I belong to, to Peter faction. I, and then, like I said, then some people, they're not above the fray here. They're just saying, well, you, you guys can have Peter and Paul and Apollos. I'll take Christ, thank you very much. And I'll feel like I'm the one who, you know, really has it figured out. Now, we don't talk like that. We don't say, well, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Peter, and I follow Christ. We, we tend to focus on we're the ones who are trying to follow Christ. I do think there are many times when out of our anxiety of needing to get it all right, that if we find out other Christians think differently from us or worship differently from us, that we need to reaffirm that, well, we're really the ones that, like Christ loves everybody, but he loves us just a little bit more, right? God's got grace for everybody, but we're, we're we think his favorites. Okay, now, what's frustrating Paul there is two things. One is that this is the kind of stuff you'd hear everywhere in that city outside of church, which means that there's divisions in the church in Corinth because there's divisions in the culture in Corinth and they have brought those divisions, they've brought that culture with them right to church and they don't know that's what they've done. And it's breaking Paul's heart. He's, he's trying to get them to understand that in baptism you're stepping out of those factions. You're stepping out of those divisions. You're stepping out of that insecurity where you try to find your level of importance and popularity by attaching yourself to someone who seems to be popular and important. Why would you do that? You don't do that anymore. You shouldn't have to do that anymore. In the last place you should ever be doing that's at church. Right? That's what he's wanting them to understand. Now, it's easy for us to see this list and shake our heads and think, man, I wish that church in Corinth, it's a mess I wish those beginner Christians 2,000 years ago had been aware that they were accidentally bringing culture, the outside way of the world, into the church. But brothers and sisters, I think if we're going to be really honest with ourselves, the church in our world is divided. And it's divided because the culture in our world is divided, and we accidentally, unknowingly bring that culture with us to church, and we don't realize what's happening this isn't our list, but we can make our own lists. One of the, the key points of division in our world, boomers and millennials, right? Boomers start talking about things, and, and you know, if you're a baby boomer, uh, you guys are such a large generation that you've pretty much 
been able to dictate the trajectory of the world the entire time you've been alive. You get used to that kind of central importance, don't you? You start to feel like, yeah, we're the ones who are paying all the bills, so the rest of you can just, you know, be, be nice and be quiet and let us make the decisions. I get it. I get it. I'm, I'm not a boomer, and I'm not a, a member of the millennial generation, so I get to judge you both equally, right? I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. Right? And if you talk to, to boomers, what's wrong with the world are the millennials, or in other words, the children they raised. That's what's wrong with the world. Am I getting a little... Un- I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say it that directly. I guess I... Yeah, I did. Right? That, do you think we're the first generation to blame our children for how the world's turning out? That's got to be as old as Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And that's not new. Millennials have that hashtag, okay, boomer, right? You got all this stuff. We get it. And we get to church, and it's difficult to let that go. And so then it becomes not so much that the, the, the millennials are ruining the world. You can start to hear, if you get into the right places, and I'm not saying that ever happens at this congregation, but I've been in places where I hear older people say, you know what's wrong with the church? It's millennials. Okay? That's a problem. Paul would say, what are you doing? What are you doing? Jesus didn't die for boomers or millennials. Jesus died for all of us. And there's some really good things that older people with a little more life experience bring to the table. There's some really good things. By the way, I think the oldest millennials are 40 now. They have kids and mortgages of their own that I'm sure they'll blame pretty soon, right? So, stop that. You're not a boomer or a millennial. You're a follower of Jesus. That's what you are. Stop. You know, we have the same thing when it comes to to different kinds of of resources. People are all over the the spectrum when it comes to the kinds of education, the kinds of, of finances they have, the kinds of opportunities they have. You know, and, and we could pretend like everybody's got the same amount of resources, but that's not true. We could act like everybody has the amount of resources they deserve to have and not a penny less or a penny more. We know it's a little more complicated than that, right? But we can start to get the defensive because of the way our world starts to encode all of that in our conversations, and we start to blame one another in ways that there's, there's nothing productive that comes out of that. And we're not asking, how do we as followers of Christ use our resources in ways that would please the heart of God? and we can fall into the culture wars of how do I protect what I have no matter what, right? Or how can I ask someone else to give me something I don't have because I feel like I'm entitled to have anything I want, right? You see that stuff find its way into church. When it comes to to value systems, what matters the most? What should your life be about? What, what should our nation's direction be, right? Let's get into that. I think Steve mentioned, you know, how would Jesus vote? Let's just, let's get as uncomfortable right here as they got in Corinth. Every time I read a new sociological study about people's relationship to the political party and the church they go to, all of the sociologists agree that about 40, 50 years ago when they would do these phone interviews with people, they'd ask them, you know, at one point in the survey, are you a Christian or not? What kind of Christian are you? People would give an answer. Then they'd say, well, how do you vote? And they would say, you know, Republican or Democrat primarily or whatever. And then they would say, but you know, because I'm a Christian, here's things about my party's platform that make me uncomfortable. Here's some things I wish my party did differently. You know what they found recently? 
We don't have Christian Republicans and Christian Democrats. We have Republicans who happen to be Christians and Democrats who happen to be Christians. And they're willing to change their values, their faith statements based on whatever their current political platform tells them, defines them. Brothers and sisters, that's a huge pro- that's a crisis of identity. That's a crisis of identity. Look, politics is an important lever when it comes to trying to make the world the way we think God wants it to be. But you better know it's a flawed tool. It has limited efficacy. And if we get to the point where how we vote is more important than our commitment to Christ, or how we vote shapes our commitment to Christ, look, I'm just going to say it this way. When you mix church and politics, you don't get churchy politics. You get politics. You just do. And we better be really careful as we enter into the political arena. We need to make sure we don't lose our hearts. Our hearts don't belong to politics. Our hearts belong to Jesus and Jesus alone. And when we drag that kind of stuff into church, we got a problem. I I read... Uh, a fellow preacher of mine said on, on, on Twitter, so I guess I'm speaking to the millennials right now. Um, he said, you know, I'm increasingly realizing that there's plenty of people who leave their church over politics, but I don't know anyone who's left their political party over their church. Man, that's uncomfortable. It stayed with me. It stayed with me. I'm not, I promise you, if I could preach this from sitting in one of these rows and have one of you say this instead of me, I would do it. I'm not preaching at you right now. I'm, I'm telling you, this is where this text really makes me uncomfortable. Because I know that I have let other people and groups and passions at times define who I am instead of Jesus. And it takes work. It's not a one-time decision. You have to choose over and over again not to give your heart away. You know, I, I think we, we don't realize... We're, You're a disciple of whatever it is you pay the most attention to. Whoever it is you pay the most attention to. I'm talking about energy and amount of time. So why don't you do a time audit this week and find out what you're a disciple of? What do you read the most? What do you watch the most? What do you listen to the most? What do you spend the most time thinking about? What do you spend the most time imagining about? What what do you base your sense of security on? That's what you're a disciple of. It's who you're a disciple of. And Paul would say, there's no room for you to be a disciple of anyone other than you don't add something to Jesus. Jesus is it. And here's the other thing I think that's tricky. We would claim, well, I'm not a disciple of that. I'm just a fan. Well, and I get that, right? He's not saying you don't have relationships with other people or you don't be, you're not a part of another group or, or you don't participate with another group or you, you're not involved in some kind of other passionate pursuit. He would say, yeah, but all of that is secondary to your commitment to Jesus. And here's what I'm afraid of is we get so stuck in this mindset of being fans that we become more fans of Jesus than followers of Jesus. And we're convincing ourselves we're just fans. Reese and I were watching the Giants Uh, win their game yesterday. Okay, and while we were watching it, I'm 42 years old and I have long since left the, the, the imaginary world of maybe one day playing in Major League Baseball. 
right? So when I watch the Giants play baseball, I'm a fan. Risa's currently trying to learn how to play softball. She watches those games differently. She's trying to figure out how to incorporate what she's watching them do into her game. You see the difference? And I think too often, we have slipped into being fans of Jesus. We admire how he plays the game, but there's no real part of us that thinks we can play it like him. And Paul would say, then what were you baptized for? What were you baptized for? You're not a fan of Jesus. Jesus doesn't need more fans. He needs disciples. And then we've got to be honest. What are the things we think we're just fans of that we've become disciples of? Only you can answer those questions. Only you know the true response that's authentic for you. We belong together. We belong to Christ. We belong to one another. And that is the foundational truth that I want you to take away from this first lesson on the Beginner's Guide to Church. There is no room in church for competition, for comparison, and for the eventual condemnation that always comes to say, well, if you're not exactly like me, then maybe you're, you're in trouble. Maybe you're the problem. Now, there's only enough room for cooperation, collaboration, compassion. There is too much at stake for us to keep holding one another arms links because we're not... If, I, if the only way I'm going to like you is you're, if you're just like me, we're not showing the church a better way. I'm sorry, the, the world a better way. We're not showing the people who are watching us what's possible because of Jesus. We are harming our witness. Why would anybody listen to us about life if we're just as divided and competitive and as cutthroat as they are? Jesus died to put a death to all that. And when we got baptized, we agreed to die to all that. And I know it keeps climbing its way back into our lives. We need to exercise those demons out of the church. We belong to Jesus. We belong to one another. We're here for each other. That's the basis of everything. We're going to sing together. And I'm going to ask Dan to join me. And as we do, I just pray this week that we can find a way to break down those relational walls we may have because we're trying to prove who's more important than the other or get more attention. And I just, I wish we'd find a way to figure out that there's only room in the church for one family and one mission. And we need everybody. We need every single one of you and your unique talent set and gift set and perspective. We need your help because there's a world out there that needs to be reached. And it's going to take all of us. Let's stand together and sing.